So as we consider the resurrection story as told by John, there's another scripture passage that I want you to have in your back pocket. And it's from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read for you verses 4 through 9. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Theologian Diana Butler Bass says that there is a question that you and I typically ask when things go wrong in our world. There is one question that we ask when there's a tragedy, like Hurricane Harvey or the Parkland shooting, and that question is, where is God? Or where was God? Now, it's a different question than the question that our grandparents or our great-grandparents would ask. They would ask the question after devastation, why would God let this happen? And I think what distinguishes those two questions, culturally speaking, is where we, in this generation and our time, where we place God. It's a difference in what we delegate as God's own space. People a hundred years ago talked about God in heaven on high. And so God was up there somewhere looking down on us, orchestrating the events that were around us, letting or not letting things happen to us. But today people are inclined to hope that God shows up in our space, that God shows up in our world in tangible ways. We want to experience what we would call or what we would label transcendent. We are on the lookout for God in our lives. One of the things that I really like about the gospel story as told by John is that the truth of Jesus Christ is that God is with us in our own world in our own space, both before the crucifixion, Jesus walks with the disciples, he teaches, he heals, and then after the crucifixion as well, death doesn't change that hopeful truth that God is with us. Jesus appears to Mary at the garden tomb, and later he appears to Thomas, And even later in this story, he appears to the gathered disciples as they are fishing. What we are supposed to learn from this resurrection account is that death can't keep Jesus the Christ from his followers. Then the rest of the New Testament will tell us that 
God is still with the gathered community after Jesus' ascension in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the gathered community that Paul will call the body of Christ. God is with us. I wonder if this ever happens at your house. Does somebody ever lose something really valuable? This happens weekly at my house. Somebody will lose car keys, or someone will lose a phone, an iPhone, or their glasses. And when this happens at my house, I am usually the one that people ask where that thing is. And maybe it's because I'm constantly straightening up or cleaning things up. But whatever the reason is, the question that I hear gives voice to their frustration of not knowing where their glasses are. And my first response is always this. Have you looked for it? Like, really looked for it? Go in your room and open your eyes, and I bet you're going to see your car keys there. I believe that we are correct, that we are right to ask the question, where is God in the midst of tragedy? It voices our frustration. But the promise is simple and the promise is true that God is with us, even in frustration, even in disaster. When we look at the scene that takes place on the first Easter morning, it really looks like chaos. Everyone is running. Mary runs to get Peter and John. Peter and John have this foot race back to the tomb. There's more running in chapter 20 of John's gospel than the rest of the chapters. This is like an Easter morning 5K the scene that, that we read earlier. Then at the tomb, John appears to be stunned. He stands outside, even though he gets there first. And Peter dashes in, and Mary sobs. She sobs through this whole scene. She stands outside, and she weeps. She cries. It reminds me a lot of when there's a death in the family. When there's a death in a family, there is usually a lot of action. And everyone has their own different reaction. There's something about John's story of Jesus' death that seems very truthfully human. I usually show up pretty stunned when there's bad news. It can just kind of stop me dead in my tracks. But I've watched family... Families where there's someone who will just barge right into the tomb, regardless. They'll barge right in. They'll organize. They will start giving orders, just like Peter did, what's going to be done next. And I'm typically envious of those who cry easily. And that's what's going on with Mary. She just stands there weeping. There's something very familiar about what's going on at the tomb. The details about the grave clothes inside of the tomb are meant to reassure us that something really different and powerful has happened. Because grave robbers wouldn't have time to unwrap the body when they were stealing the body and leave the clothes neatly stacked. And 
John also wants us to know that this isn't just a mere resuscitation. Like when Lazarus was raised and he just went back to life as life had gone on for him before. Lazarus needed help getting unbound from the cloth that he was tied in. In chapter 11, Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb and And the text says that because his hands and feet and face are all bound and covered with cloth, then Jesus just says, simply says to those who are standing around Lazarus, unbind him, set him free. But in Jesus' tomb, there's no evidence of struggle. There's no evidence of theft. Something new, something wonderful, something spectacular, something different is happening. And here's what I think is happening. What I think is happening in the tomb is verse 8 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says this, And then the Lord God planted a garden. Seven simple words. Will you read them with me? And the Lord God planted a garden. What's happening in the 20th chapter of John's gospel is new creation. The Lord God is planting a garden. One of my very favorite biblical scholars, N.T. Wright, calls this day eight of creation. What's going on when Jesus is resurrected? Day eight, new creation. I do some work in my yard, some digging, some planting, some pruning and watering. It really is good to be outside in San Antonio this time of year as opposed to in July in San Antonio. I'm no gardener. I'd like to be, but I'm not there yet. I did work in the yard yesterday because it really was a cool and beautiful morning. So I planted a few bulbs. I dug up some dead plants. When my kids woke up, this was probably about 1030 or 11. (laughs) When they woke up and came outside, what they said to me was this, mom, what are you doing? This is What they didn't say to me was this, excuse me, ma'am, are you the landscaper here? No, there was no mistaking. They knew exactly who I was. They said, mom, what the heck are you doing with that shovel in your hand? When the resurrected Christ appears to Mary and she doesn't know who he is, but we do, who does she guess him to be? The gardener. Yeah, she guesses him to be the gardener. I've always read that part of the story and then had this thought, oh, silly Mary, she's confused. And maybe she is. Maybe maybe Mary is confused. But what you and I need to hear is that that's a really good guess. John doesn't include details in the gospel story just for the sake of details. He doesn't just throw them in willy-nilly. When John writes something, he wants us to read it. He wants us to hear it. Every detail in John's gospel has weight. And when he tells us that Mary thinks that the resurrected Christ is the gardener, he wants us to think that Jesus is the gardener too. Because Jesus really is a gardener. He's cultivating. He's turning over soil. He's pruning, he's planting, he's promoting new growth here, and fruit will come. Diana Butler Bass wrote this book that's titled Grounded, 
And in the book, she tells a story about going to a farmer's market and visiting with a guy who is sitting at the farmer's market with a stack of books at his table. He's an author. He's also an organic farmer. So he's written this book. And the book is titled Gaining Ground. So as another author, author to author, she starts to ask him questions. And she asks him, because she's a theologian, does religion play any part in your story? And he says, no, not really. I was raised Episcopalian, but I don't practice anymore. And so then she says, so you'd consider yourself secular? And his response to her was this. He said, no, there's no such thing as a secular farmer. (laughs) The seasons are spiritual. The soil is spiritual. Farmers are a spiritual lot. I believe that farmers and gardeners know something that pastors and bishops have forgotten. And that is that God shows up out there, under the sky, in creation, in the rain, in the soil, God shows up. St. Francis of Assisi lived in the 13th century, and he preached a lot, but he never preached inside of a church. St. Francis drew crowds of people to what he had to say outside when he preached in the sunshine or in the rain. There's a church that exists right now in San Pedro, California, and they call themselves a living sanctuary. That's a picture of them behind me. They purchased an abused piece of land in a poor neighborhood, and they're working the soil and planting a garden. What they say about themselves is the garden is the church. There are no plans for them to ever build a building. That's their church. The communion table sits outside among rows of vegetables, And a greenhouse is the worship space whenever it rains. They learn gardening and theology at the same time. And I think John would be so proud. I think he would love that. They say about themselves, the church is the garden, and the garden is the work of the church. Our friend Alexander Shia who is also a heavyweight theologian, reminded me in his book, Heart and Mind, that the Jerusalem temple was constructed in such a way that everyone who entered the Jerusalem temple would be thinking about the Garden of Eden. The main gate of the Jerusalem temple faced the rising of the sun, so it faced east. And when you went into the inner sanctuary, when you approached the Holy of Holies, you would see palm trees and flowers painted on the walls. And then inside the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, there were two sculptures of angels protecting the Ark of the Covenant as two angels guarded the gates to Eden. John's story of the resurrection, it happens in the early morning hours. It happens as the sun is rising. We're facing the rising sun of the east. And when Mary looks into the tomb, 
she sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus would have been, one at the head and the other at the feet. And then there's this gardener. The gardener meets Mary in her grief. The text tells us three different times that Mary is weeping. And so she's not just tearing up here. She's really troubled. She is focused on her loss, focused on her sadness, consumed with grief. And Jesus, the resurrected one, the Christ, meets her there. The first identity that she puts on him is gardener. He's making all things new, a new creation. And the second identity she puts on him is rabbi. She calls him rabboni, which is a term of endearment. It means my own rabbi. It's a way of saying to the resurrected Christ, you're still my teacher. You're a few steps ahead of me. I trust what you are doing. I will follow you. Rabboni. Then the resurrected Christ turns to Mary and he says to her, don't hold on to me. So this isn't like a spooky, weird thing that Jesus says to Mary, I'm a ghost. Don't touch me. That's not what he's saying. He is saying to her, don't cling to me. Don't try to keep me in one place. Don't try to control me. I think it's a way of saying to her, I've got this. I'm still here with you. You can still follow me. I am still your rabbi. The difference for us after the resurrection is that we have this master gardener rabbi. A master gardener rabbi. What difference does that make in our day-to-day lives? I've confessed to you all before that I have this problem, this issue with judgment. And I think it's because I'm pretty good at it. Like, I can usually assess a situation and put a label on it. This is good or this is bad. And I usually know. I know good from bad. My spiritual director has rightly, I think, directed me a couple of times to a passage in a book by Barbara Brown Taylor. It's a book called An Altar in the World. And in the chapter on blessings, she has these three lines that my spiritual director, Janet, will say, you should go read those lines again, Dinah, and I do. And this is what it says. Ease up on holding the line between what is bad and what is good for you. Give up on thinking that you're smart enough to know the difference between the two. Surrender the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Surrender the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I can kind of in my mind's eye imagine that. It kind of looks like this. Okay, I've got your fruit. I know the story. It's a family story. I heard the story. We took this fruit from you. It was not right. I know that we did that. So I'm, I'm here to bring that fruit, this fruit from the tree of the knowledge and good of good and evil back to you. Yeah, I see that there are a couple of bites taken out of it because I really like the taste of it. But I know that it belongs on your table. And so I'm surrendering this fruit back to you. And I think when I surrender the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil back to God, it looks like a prayer. A prayer that I pray regardless of my circumstances 
And that prayer says, Lord, what can you make of this? Even in disastrous situations, what can you make of this? And then following that prayer, there's trust. Trust that I trust this rabbi gardener to make all things new. I haven't mastered it yet, but I believe that's what it means to have Easter faith. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You are creator. You created our world. And you continue to work and create. You sent to us a savior who is a master gardener rabbi. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see you at work in our lives and our world, regardless of the circumstances, that we would witness you making all things new. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.